Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Hebrews 1, 1-3 In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful work. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Sam, and it's my privilege to once again open this part of God's word with you and and hopefully explain it to you. Um, But please, uh, will you bow bow with me and let's pray to our great God before we come to this. Dear God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that every time we read it, you speak to us. We pray that this morning you would help us to listen and to trust that these words are true. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever looked at some of the uh, rulers of the past and, and thought about how restrictive life would be living in their kingdom? Let me give you a few examples. Under King Henry VIII, the city of London banned men from having long beards. (laughs) Walt Disney, when he was still alive, he took this a step further. He didn't allow anyone who worked in his kingdom at Disneyland to have any kind of facial hair. In a place called Newmarket in England, which apparently was the birthplace of horse racing, it used to be illegal for you to blow your nose in the street. Even COVID's not that strict. Apparently, they were afraid that the racehorses would catch human sickness. In France, it used to be illegal for women to wear pants or trousers unless they were holding the reins of a horse or riding a bike. Now, that sounds really old-fashioned, but this law actually wasn't removed until 2013. For a long time in history, people used to be hanged if they were suspected of being a witch But in 1736, England introduced a strange new rule which made it legal for people to be witches, but illegal for people to pretend to be witches. (laughs) Thankfully, they changed that law long before any of the Harry Potter movies were premiered. Now, it's easy to laugh about these laws, because they all sound ridiculous, but how would you go at living under these laws? What if you had a king who actually restricted you from doing all of these things, restricted you from doing what a lot of other nations were allowed to do, free to do? Often when people look at Christianity, they don't like the idea of God being in charge. Because often the Christian God is thought of as this restrictive king who doesn't let his people have what everyone else has. But is this true? What kind of king does the Bible present to us? 
the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen how this language in, in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 reminds us about the biblical picture of prophets, the ones who, who bring God to the people. And the biblical picture of priests, the, the ones who help the people be good enough for God. But as we look at this passage again one last time, we see it also reminds us about the biblical picture of kings. And we see this language here in this passage, in the words like heir and, and majesty. But what are the kings of the Bible like? And what makes them so important in God's story? Well, to get the, the full picture of this passage in the New Testament, we need to go, uh, first go back to the Old Testament, because that's where the biblical picture of a king begins to be formed. Like Israel's prophets who brought God to the people and like, his, like their priests who helped people be good enough for God, Israel's kings were anointed. They were set apart from, ev- from the everyday people. And this anointing was a reminder that the kings of the Bible are blessed by God and called to a uniquely heavenly task. And that task or that job was to bring peace to the kingdom, to defend the people and use their power to defeat the enemies. Kings bring peace to the kingdom. And peace is really important in God's kingdom, because in 1 Corinthians 14.33 we read, For God is not a God of disorder, or, or another word that we could use there is chaos. God's not a God of chaos, but of peace. So if God's the God of peace, then we should expect there to be peace in His kingdom, and expect the kings who rule to rule with peace too. And so God expected these kings of the Old Testament to rule the people in a way that would remind the people of how God rules with kindness and justice and mercy to bring about peace for His people. And the reason the kings were to remind the people of God through the way that they ruled was was because God was Israel's true king. So whichever person was appointed to rule Israel, their ultimate job was to point people to God, to the true king, the king of peace, the king of kings. But if God is the true king of Israel, then why did Israel need a person to rule over them? Well, for a long time, Israel lived without a human king ruling over them. After God rescued Israel from Egypt, they all lived with God as their king. And that was something that was really special about Israel. Because although every other nation had a human king, Israel didn't. And they didn't need a human king, because they had God as their king. And that was really good. Not having a human king set Israel apart from all the other nations. The problem is, that didn't last very long. Eventually, Israel forgot why it was good to be set apart. Why it was good to not only have God as their king to only have him as their king. And and they became envious. They envied all the other nations around them. And where there's envy or jealousy or bitterness, there's not much room left for peace. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Now, Now Samuel was a prophet In Israel, it was his job to bring God to the people. The elders said to Samuel, You're old, and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, like what all the other nations have. 
But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, to God, and, and God told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. They've rejected me as their king. And that's right. That's right, because by asking for a king, Israel's essentially saying, God's not enough. The other nations, though, they get gods and kings. We want both as well. Just having gods, not enough, we want a king too. Israel envies what everyone else has, and they feel as though they're missing out. They want to be like everyone else. But where did this desire to be like the other nations come from? Surely living with God would remind you that you've already got everything, already got more than enough. So where did this desire, this envy, come from? Well, we can actually trace it all the way back to the first people that God ever made, to Adam and Eve. Because when Adam and Eve lived in the garden with God, a similar desire, a similar envy crept into their hearts too. See, when God, the King of kings, made people, He made us to live in this wonderful relationship with Him. He set us apart from the rest of His creation, from all the animals and created things, by making us in His image. And what that means is that like God, we would be relational beings and ruling beings. We would be given the right to rule under God and over His creation. And we see this in Genesis 2, where God brings all the animals to Adam for him to name. And this is a very kingly picture of Adam. But we weren't just made to rule. We're also made for a relationship, to live connected to God, to live peacefully in His kingdom, letting the God of peace rule by trusting that what He says is good. By trusting what He says is good. And this is the picture we get of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. As they live in the garden with God, it's a beautifully peaceful picture. Humanity living with the God who made them, ruling with Him over creation, and living connected to Him. But unfortunately, things didn't stay this peaceful for long. In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to another character, a talking serpent named Satan. And Satan, he slithers up to Eve in the garden and whispers to her a deadly promise. Eve, there's nothing in the world that's off limits to you. Even the fruit of that one tree that God said you shouldn't eat, just, he, he just, he's just being selfish. He just doesn't want you to become a god like him. But when you're made to rule... Ruling under Him isn't going to bring you peace. If you eat that fruit, you'll be just like God. Then you'll know peace. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you desire? Isn't that what you deserve? It won't kill you to just eat it. Go on. Take a bite. Trust me. So Eve takes charge. She follows her heart's desire and decides that Satan's promise is too good to ignore. She eats the fruit 
that God had forbidden her and Adam to eat. And she gave some to Adam as well, who also follows the desires of his heart, and he eats it too. And in that moment, Eve and Adam both decide in their own hearts that they don't need God. They can be God and take control of things on their own. Surely that's true peace. They believe Satan's lie and attempt to take control without God. They take the crown from God's head and they put it on their own heads. Instead of trusting the good voice of God, they trust their own hearts and they put themselves in God's place. Their hearts reject God as king. And this is what every person ever since has done. Inside every person, there's a heart that rejects the king. Instead of trusting the good voice of God, we all trust our own hearts and we all put ourselves in God's place. And God knows this. He describes what we're like in in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2. He says, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but, but you're a mere mortal and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. All of us, since the beginning, have hearts that are proud and deceitful, hearts that find it so much easier to believe the lies of Satan than to believe the truths of God. Every day we make choices that go against God's will for us, convincing ourselves that we're wiser than God and that our decisions that we come up with are better than what He asks of us. Every day we all act as if we're gods. We steal the crown from the true King and we wear it as though we've earned it. But this rebellion against the God of peace doesn't keep us connected to Him. No, when we turn away from God by trusting our hearts, instead, we reject Him and we become disconnected from Him. Because inside every person, there's a heart that rejects the King. And where we let our hearts rule instead of God, there isn't peace. No, when we let our hearts rule, chaos also reigns. Because without God, our lives become chaos. Without God, our hearts begin to deform. Our bodies begin to decay and our world begins to break. We've all let the lies of Satan settle in and make their home inside our hearts. We've invited chaos to come and stay and we've pushed peace far away. And we're all powerless, powerless against these lies that cause chaos. Powerless to stop them, powerless to avoid them, powerless to remove them. But why would we want to? Why, if they they offer their host the promise of a throne, of a crown, of mountains of treasure, why would we want to stop them or remove them? Satan's lies are devilishly tempting to keep around. But the truth is, the pride of your heart is a deadly illusion. 
These lies promise you so much, yet they can only actually provide one thing, eternal death. Your heart's rejected God as king, and the chaos that's entangled around you now will never go away. When we reject God as king, we're forever disconnected from him, cut off from him, with no power in ourselves to calm the chaos or fix what we have broken. And if this is true of everyone, then it's no wonder that Israel had a hard time letting God be in charge too. They wanted to take control, to be like everyone else. And like everyone else, their hearts deceived them to believe that God wasn't enough for them. And so they invited chaos to come and make its home among them. Israel's first king, Saul, well, he wasn't able to bring peace to Israel. Instead, he caused a multitude of chaos. David, the second king, he he was a lot better than Saul, and he did manage to bring peace to Israel for a while because he actually let God rule his heart. But even David couldn't hold back the chaos forever. Like everyone else, David sinned by listening to his heart instead of God. He committed adultery with another woman and then murdered that woman's husband. Then the rest of his life was nothing less than chaotic mess. After David came King Solomon. And though he wasn't all that bad either, he he eventually let his heart reign instead of God. And the chaos that he caused split the nation of Israel. Split them apart. Inside every person, there is a heart that rejects the king, and sadly, Israel wasn't any different. So if even Israel, God's special, set-apart, chosen people of the Old Testament, and even Israel's kings, God's chosen among the chosen, couldn't resist the deadly lies of Satan and hold back the chaos, then what hope does anyone else have? What hope do we have? We've all rejected the king who made us. We've all allowed our hearts to rule in his place and we've all become disconnected from him, from God. Disconnected from from the peace he brings and, and we are destined to live in chaos forever, to spend eternity in hell with Satan himself. So what hope do we have? Well, even though we've all completely rejected God, God doesn't completely reject us. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, the same book that we heard from before, God says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God doesn't desire for us to remain in chaos. He wants us, each of us, to have life and peace, to turn back to Him and have life in His kingdom once more. Isn't that an incredible insight into what the King of the Bible is like? But our hearts are deformed. Our bodies are decaying. We're all powerless to stop Satan's lies, powerless to avoid them and powerless to remove them. It's, it's impossible for us to turn to God on our own. 
So that's why God himself steps in to fix the problem himself. Remember, it's a king's job to bring peace to the kingdom, to defend the people and and use his power to defeat the enemy. So if God wants people to live with him in his kingdom, to have people worth defending, then he would need to use his power to defeat our enemies. And we already know who the enemies of God's kingdom are, Satan, rebellion, death. The enemy of God is chaos. If God can somehow defeat and remove the the chaos that we've caused, then this would free us and make it possible for us to turn to him and have life in his kingdom forever. So how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, he sends the heir of his throne. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to come and use his power to bring eternal peace to the kingdom. Jesus, the son of God, come as a man, comes to bring the kingdom of heaven to the people. Jesus is the king that we read of in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Look at the kingly language that's used here of Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus lives in perfect obedience to his Father. He's the exact representation of God. There's no rebellion in his heart, no chaos within him. But by the time that Jesus came, the chaos of the world had become so bad that the world, people like you and me, we couldn't bear to let Jesus be in charge. Even this Prince of Peace was rejected by his own people. There are some kings throughout history who were lifted up by their people, often on shields or on sacred rocks, to pronounce to the entire kingdom just how powerful these kings are. But not this king. No, Jesus isn't lifted up on a shield or a sacred stone. He's lifted up on a filthy old cross, crowned not with gold and diamonds, but crowned with thorns. Nails were pierced through his hands and feet to keep him up high before the people. But but this wasn't in honor of his power. No, we put him there to mock him, to scorn him, and to reject him. Just like his father, this son, this heir to God's throne was rejected by the people. But even though our hearts couldn't bear to let Jesus rule as king and and led us to killing the heir, Jesus' power to defend his kingdom and defeat his enemies was much stronger than those nails. He used his power, that same power he used to create the entire universe, he used that power to withhold his strength. He allowed himself to be killed. 
in order to defeat the greatest enemy once and for all. Jesus died to put an end to death itself. He died to restore peace to his kingdom. And even though as Jesus' body was wrapped in cloths and laid in a tomb and the world was convinced it was all over, even though it seemed chaos had won, that death had claimed its greatest victim and that Satan now reigned as king, three days later, the true king revealed how truly powerful he is. Using his power to now withhold death itself, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. His resurrected body, which more than 500 people witnessed, is proof that death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Chaos has been defeated. And now when you turn, when you turn to King Jesus and you put your trust in Him, do you know what He promises you? Peace. He says in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you, give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. In Jesus, we are promised peace. And it's not the kind of peace the world expects because it's not worldly peace that he gives. It's peace from God. Freedom from chaos. And the promise of life forever with God, of life reconnected to God. Yes, the world is still a chaotic place. And yeah, even people who trust in Jesus still experience chaos every day. But when your trust in Jesus, when you live with Him as your King, you can be certain that that, that, that chaos has already been robbed of its power. Because a greater king, a better king, is using his strength to withhold the eternal effects of chaos. And knowing that, trusting that our king continues to do his work in us to hold back the eternal effects of chaos, that's what brings us peace now. That's what brings us peace now. Trusting that our king our king has defeated our greatest enemies by rising from his own death is what brings us peace now. And if that's what our king is willing to do for us, then that makes him a very good king indeed. A king that we can trust. A king that we'd want to listen to and a king we'd want to follow forever. We all live like we want to be king every day of our lives. We want to be the king of our workplace, so we expect others, especially people who are younger or less experienced than us, to be our servants and to do the stuff that we don't want to do. We want to be the king of our, of our homes, expecting even our families to always be on task and getting frustrated when, when things aren't in order. We act as if we're the king of the road as we sit and demand that other plebs on the road would ask our permission before they change lanes or pull out. This week, 
I was acting, as if I was king, when I went to the movies, of all places. There I was, sitting in my throne with cup holders, getting annoyed every time I heard someone up the back start speaking to their friend. I mean, how dare they interrupt my entertainment? How dare they interrupt my silence? Don't they know that I paid to be here? That I deserve to have silence? And that inner chaos? Well, that's nothing compared to how bad, how evil our thoughts can get. So easily the pride of our heart, it creeps in, and without any effort whatsoever, we start to expect people to bow down to us as if we're kings, as if we're gods. So, so easily our hearts deceive us. We deceive ourselves into thinking that no one, no one knows how to rule my life better than I do. We don't like it when people tell us what, we do, what to do. We hate it when people tell us we're wrong and we hate it when we lose control. When that crown on our heads gets threatened, our instinct is to stand our ground and defend. And the problem is that we don't defend our crown like gods, with peace. No, we defend our crown like sinners, with chaos. We let chaos reign and we will hurt the people we love if they dare threaten our crown by telling us what to do, telling us we're wrong or taking our control away from us. We all defend our crown like sinners ruled by chaos. The kingdoms we build for ourselves, they can't provide us with peace. We can spend our lives trying to defend what we own, defend what we've achieved and defend what we've built. But at the end of the day, these are just kingdoms of chaos, kingdoms of self-destruction. Our material possessions, our, our money, our jobs, our houses, our achievements, even our relationships can't keep us alive and can't keep us from eternal death. There's only one kingdom that can last because there's only one king who's outlasted death itself. The king is Jesus and the kingdom is heaven. And unless you ask Jesus, the King of kings, to come and rescue you from your self-destructing kingdom, you'll not have life after death. You will suffer an eternity of chaos rather than enjoy an eternity of peace. But we can't just ask Jesus to be our King once. Every day, our hearts deceive us. Because inside every person, there is a heart that rejects the king. Every day, we take God's crown and we put it on our own heads. So we need to ask Jesus again and again and again to be our king. Because Jesus isn't your king once when you first accept him and then again when you get to heaven. No, Jesus is your king now. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, Jesus is the Son of God, heir of all things. And he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we not only need Jesus, the King of kings, to rescue us from our self-destructing king kingdoms of chaos and bring us into his life-giving kingdom of peace, but we actually need the King of Kings to continue to use His indestructible power to withhold our chaos and keep us with Him. 
It's so important. It's so important that we remind our hearts every day who the real king is. That we remind ourselves of the resurrected Jesus. Because only in him can we have peace from the chaos. Because only Jesus has the power to withhold chaos and keep us reconnected to the God of peace for all eternity. Let's, be, let's come before our King and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your forgiveness, for we all have hearts that reject the King, all have hearts that reject you. Please forgive us, Lord God. And we thank you so much that in Jesus we have a King who has defeated the chaos, death and Satan that, that easily reigns in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to cling to King Jesus. Thank you that he is not only our prophet, our better priest, but that he is our better King who can defeat our enemies and has defeated the enemy with his own body through death and rising back to life. Help us to trust in King Jesus and help us to come to him every day and ask that he would continue to be our king and reign in our lives because we need him, Lord. We need him every day. Help us to depend on him and help us to encourage each other to look to him and trust in him and to turn from our sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.